chapter 11 tonight, um, what I want to remember back to is last week we looked at, and Jesus was uh, you know, traveling south, and he's on his way to Jerusalem. And his disciples, of course, they thought he was a little bit crazy for wanting to go to the one place where he was most likely not going to be accepted at all. He was no longer just going to be, you know, kind of have some backlash from some of the things he's taught because he was outside of the box of what they were normal, normally used to in religion. He had uh, oftentimes uh, kind of brought them to a place of complete uh, and utter, ups- they were upset with him. They were completely upset with him because he did not fit inside of who they thought the Messiah would look like. And then he came on the scene and he claimed that he was God and that he was the son of God. And if you are from a religious background at all, you know that if you have an idea of who God is and somebody comes in and says they follow that same God, but they, they don't fit really that characteristic that you're used to. This is what a Christian looks like. It completely spins you out. It's like, no, no, that, that's not what Christians look like. But in the same characteristic, Jesus uh, was just like that. He took those that were even the religious leaders and he, uh, he knocked them on the, off their feet. And oftentimes what he would say to them is, he, you know, the Pharisees and the scribes, their main purpose was to know the law of God, the Old Testament. And he would ask them a question that we oftentimes go, oh, okay. Because he said, have you not read? And he would quote from scripture. That would be how he would make his reasoning for all the things that he did. And it was funny because he would say that to them. It was kind of a a backhanded compliment because their whole purpose, the Pharisees and scribes, was to read. That was what they prided themselves in, knowing the scriptures. And so Jesus would say, have you not read? And the reality was they had read. I think oftentimes we think that people that are ignorant of the things of the Lord are that way because they just don't know. But oftentimes what it is is they've read the Bible for years but the Holy Spirit hasn't been the one teaching them. They've just been reading it maybe to prove it wrong, maybe just to you know, say, hey, I've read the Bible and now I'm going to read this other philosophical book. But they weren't reading it to see Jesus. They were reading it for whatever reason. Well, I did that for years. I read the Bible, but I didn't have the Holy Spirit. I wasn't saved. I just was trying to read it because I, I, everybody was telling me there's truth in the Word of God. He is the truth. So... At one point, I was reading the passage where it says uh, a person must be born again. And so because of that, I read that. And I was like, okay. So it's like, Lord, I want to be born again. Save me. And then he did. And next thing you know, I started reading the Bible and it made sense to me. It didn't all make sense to me. You know, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of prophetical books that I still struggle with. But as I study, I see Jesus in every part and parcel of, of God's word. So anyway, Jesus had just healed a blind man. His name was Bartimaeus. He was the son of Timaeus. And this man, many would look at him as a very humble man. He, he had a, a beggar's garment, and as he wore it, he sat there on the side of the road, and he asked for alms. You know, he asked for, for goodwill offerings so that he could live. He did, wasn't able to work because of his blindness. And Jesus, when he came along the road, and Timaeus, the son of Timaeus, heard that Jesus was coming, he said, you know, he cried out, he said, Son of David, Son of David, have mercy on me. And as he did that, Jesus stopped. And those that were mocking the blind man for yelling out in the crowd, you know, they looked and Jesus stopped and he said, send that man to me. And then all the crowd said, you know, he's calling for you. And so, you know, the man had cast aside his garment and went to Jesus and Jesus healed his blindness. But all the people that could see around him didn't see that Jesus was the son of God, the son of David. But this blind man, 
because he had a weakness, because he was humble. He saw that Jesus was more than just some man. And so he cried out to him after hearing all the stories. He said, there has to be something more because there's too many people testifying that he can change your life. And so he cried out when that man's eyes were brought to sight. Jesus said, now go your way. And, and because of this new found freedom, he, he looked at the one who had, who had given him sight. And he said, my way is now your way. I want to go with you. You're the one that, that gave me sight. I want to use that sight for you. And so I thought that was a beautiful picture of what God does. He saves us. And then he says, go your way. He gives us freedom. And we can choose to use whatever he gives us, talents, time, uh, our homes, uh, you know, just whatever he gives us. We have the choice to use it for us or for to, to use it for him. And oftentimes what you see is there are a lot of people that go, hey, God fixed my thing. Now I'm hitting the road. I'm going to go my own way. But at the same time, the Lord still does that for them. He's gracious. But oftentimes what you see in those that are disciples of Jesus, they realize what they've been given by God. They turn around and they say, I, I didn't have anything before. Now I'm going to take what you gave me and I'm going to give it back to you. And I was just reading in my devotions this week where uh, Jesus feeds the 5,000. And he looks at them and he, you know, they're like, hey, we don't have enough food. And he looks at them and he goes, well, how many loaves do you have? What do you have? Don't look at what you don't have. What do you have? And so he takes that bread and the two fish. He says, well, this is what we have. And Jesus goes, okay, go divide everyone into, into, into groups because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feed them. And he breaks the bread and he, and he takes it and he gives thanks to the Lord. And when he does that, he, he gives it to his 12 disciples and they divide it among the 5,000. So there was 5,000. But that didn't, uh, I think it's Luke that said it didn't, or Matthew, that it didn't actually include women and children. So it was way more than 5,000. And as they went out and passed it out, they kept coming back to Jesus for more bread. They would go hand it out. The beautiful thing I noticed about it this time that I read through it was that when they gave everything that they had to Jesus as far as food, he took it and he multiplied it. But afterwards, there were 12 baskets of bread left. So we think oftentimes, Lord, I don't know if I can give you everything that I have. Because what will I do then? And he says, give me everything you have and I will give you what you need. Because oftentimes he gives us more than what we need. So that was just something personally that touched me this morning. So as we start in Mark chapter 11, that's kind of the background. He's just healed the blind man and now we're going to this next. He goes on to the next town. He's still heading towards Jerusalem. So Mark chapter 11, verse 1. It says, now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives... Okay, we didn't get very far, but I wanted to first point out he's been coming down from the Sea of Galilee up there on the map, uh, down through Decapolis, and then he came down to Jericho, and then he goes down from the east to the west towards Jerusalem. And right to the east of Jerusalem is the Mount of Olives. I don't have it on the map, but I'm just kind of telling you where it's at. And then there's this place called Bethpage and Bethany. Both Bethpage and Bethany are about two miles east of the gates of Jerusalem. For a point of reference, if you remember in John chapter 12, verse 1, a man by the name of Lazarus, he was from um, Bethany. So that's the same town that Jesus laid, raised uh, Lazarus up from the dead. And so uh, it's also important to note that this is the point during the year when the Jews would typically go to Jerusalem for the Passover. And, uh, and we'll talk about that here in a minute. So there's tons of people there. And so uh, from the Mount of Olives, verse 1 at the end there, it says, He sent two of his disciples 
And he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you've entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. Verse 4, So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, What are you doing? Loosing that colt. And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded. They said, You know, the Lord has need of it. So they let them go. And then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. So Jesus had characteristics in this story that pointed to his deity. And they are shown in this passage in a couple of ways. Number one, his omniscience. That means that he knows everything. God knows everything. We can't fathom that because we don't know much, but we think we know everything, right? But God literally knows everything. And I know this because not only did he send them to get a colt, but he sent for them to get it from a person that he had not yet spoken to. It's not like he got on his cell phone and called ahead. You know, hey, can you prepare a colt for me so I can ride into town? No, he, he sends them ahead. He's, he's omniscient. He's able to know all things. And he knew exactly what he needed to say to them. And you can imagine these guys, they're sitting there just minding their own business. They got their colt tied up. And these people come up and try to steal it. What would you or I say? What are you doing? Yeah, that's my colt. You know, it, the equivalent would be, hey, get, out, get away from my car. Are you trying to steal it? You know, but these men... Uh, for whatever reason, already had it in their heart when if somebody was going to take it, they said, oh, okay. <laughs> oh, well, the Lord needs it. Okay, we'll go ahead and take it. <laughs> you know, so, um, but another thing is notice his authority over creation. He was also able to get right on this donkey, and it says there, it, was, uh, it says, upon which no one had ever sat before. So no one had ever ridden this donkey. And if you've ever tried to break a horse, or any man, animal for that matter, it's kind of dangerous. So to take this colt and just sit on it and to have it sit still is pretty amazing. But another thing is that, you know, sometimes that actually can happen. You can get an animal that is able to be calm and let you sit on it. But no matter, Jesus is also master of all nature and all creatures. Remember when he spoke the words, peace be still, in Mark chapter 4, verse 39. You'll remember the story they got in the boat and Jesus said, let us go to the other side. When they got in the boat, Jesus looked at them, you know, he went to the end of the boat and he was tired. He'd been walking. So he fell asleep in the front of the boat and the disciples are all sitting there probably, you know, just chit chatting, you know, wasting time. They've been on boats before. Maybe they're playing. I don't know what they're doing. They could be playing cards for all I know, but they're going across the, the Sea of Galilee there. They're headed to the other side. Well, as happens in that area and is normal, a big squall line comes in and a storm starts because it's way below sea level and it's surrounded by mountains with hot air. And so oftentimes there's these big storm fronts that come in, kind of like living in Missouri if you think about it. seems like every time you don't like the weather, you wait five minutes and it changes. Well, these guys are taking this journey across the Sea of Galilee and all of a sudden the weather changes. Not only does it change, but it's a storm. And they're not in a boat that's very big. If you think about it, oftentimes I thought about the boat they were in. It was really probably the length of this stage. And they got 12 guys and Jesus in there. So they're headed across the Sea of Galilee. And the storm comes up out of nowhere, this big swell. And the boat's crashing and they're rocking. And, and Jesus is just asleep in the bottom of the boat. And they're like, what in the world? And so they go over and they shake him. And they go, Lord, do you not even care that we're going to perish here? 
And Jesus stood up, and rather than tell him, hey, it's going to be okay, he stands up and he says, peace, be still. And the ocean completely settles. The storm goes away, and the waves settle. So Jesus, Lord over all creation. And so the fact that it had not been ridden before also followed a statute in the Old Testament. And this is one that I thought was interesting. Only animals that had not been used for ordinary purposes, like plowing or riding to town, not only the animals that had not been used for ordinary purposes were in that day appropriate to be used for sacred purposes. So he didn't want just any animal. He wanted one that hadn't been used before. But why would he choose to ride on a donkey instead of something large and majestic, like a big stallion? You know, that's what I would want to ride. I don't want some grocery getter. I want a Mustang. You know, I, want, I don't want a Ford Festiva. I want a car with, you know, the convertible top. I'm going parade style. You know, I'm going to the local dealership saying, hey, what's the best you got? And I want to borrow it. But he doesn't do that. He, uh, he rides in on a donkey. But the fact of the matter is that the donkey in those days was considered a royal animal, an exotic animal. It was like having an exotic car. It was a hybrid. You know, you, you got two different kinds because, you know, a donkey is not really uh, one animal. It's like, I forget what it is, but, or is that a mule? Anyway, it was, it, that was what they would run. <laughs> I, should have, I shouldn't have went with that. But the point is, is that in that day, a king, if he was going to go into a city under a banner of peace, he would ride a donkey. But if he was going to go in there under the banner of war, then he would ride the horse. That was the war stallion. You wanted something quick. You wanted to show something powerful. But coming in on a donkey, he was coming in humility. He was coming in under a banner of peace. And that was what Jesus was doing. He was coming into Jerusalem under a banner of peace. For another instance in Scripture, if you want to study in your own time, uh, where this, is, uh, this occurs in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 32 through 40. But the donkey was what a king would ride into town under the banner of peace. As a matter of fact, if you want to see a point where Jesus does come into town riding on a horse, it's for judgment, and it's in Revelation chapter 19. We get a vision of Jesus' return where we see him riding on a horse, and he's not coming for peace. He's coming to judge unrighteousness. The colt that Jesus rode on it was, I already said that, verse 8, and, and many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees, and they spread them on the road. Now this, is, this was as close as they could get to rolling out the red carpet. It was, it was the idea of you know, what you see on TV when the stars come in, and they roll in in their chariot, their limo, and they roll out the red carpet. Well, they don't have red carpet, but they don't want him standing on that dirty ground. And so they take everything they have. They take their cloaks. They take the palm branches. It's just whatever was close. And then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, and this is why we sang this song tonight, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This was what we referred to as the triumphal entry. Now, if you went, in, went to a church like I did when I was younger, uh, what they would have is on the Sunday morning, the week before Easter, on Palm Sunday, they would have the children's church, oftentimes, have palm branches, and they would come in, and they would wave them. And this was just to remind everybody in the congregation, this is what was going on when Jesus was alive. The week before his crucifixion, he came in, and they all cheered. They all praised his name. 
So now my question is, why were all the people along the road and entrance into Jerusalem in the first place? And the answer is that they were all gathered during this week for celebration. I already mentioned it, for the Feast of the Passover. But what is Passover and why were they celebrating? This is important to know because it also kind of is a type of why Jesus was showing up. Let's look back to Deuteronomy chapter 16 for the answer. Since the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible, right? And so if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 16, it's the fifth book, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. I wrote it down this time because I messed it up last time. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. And if you get there to Deuteronomy chapter 16, what you'll find is that you'll have kind of a reminder of why they celebrated the Passover in the first place. And it kind of lines it out a way, but it's a summary. And I thought it was way better to read it from Scripture because oftentimes I try to retell things. I make it way too long and I get it way too complicated. So there it is in Deuteronomy 16, verse 1 through 8. It says, Observe the month of Abib. That was the first month of the Jewish calendar. And keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. Now, Abib can also be Nisan because they use two different calendars. But um, it says, Therefore, you shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God from the flock and the herd in the place where the Lord chooses to put his name. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread with it. That is the bread of affliction, for you came out of the land of Egypt in haste that you may remember the day in which you came out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. So it was a feast to remember. And no leaven shall be seen among you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the meat which you sacrificed the first day at twilight remain overnight until morning. You may not sacrifice the Passover within any of your gates, which the Lord your God gives you, but at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. There you shall sacrifice the Passover at twilight. That was when the sun went down. At the going down of the sun. Oh, there it was. At the time you came out of Egypt. And you shall not. And you shall roast and eat it in the place which the Lord your God chooses. And in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. Six days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a sacred assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. So this was a feast where they were supposed to Sabbath. And what they would do, where the Lord chose to rest his name, they would go back to the temple in Jerusalem because that's where he chose to rest his name. Remember, Solomon built the second temple and he built it in all its glory and splendor. And that they would all go, no matter if they lived in a different country, no matter if they lived you know, 500 miles away, if they were a, a practicing Jew, they would leave and they would go to that place. They would take a journey. Many of the psalms in the Old Testament would actually be psalms of worship as they would go because the way to get there was oftentimes dangerous. So they would worship on the way saying, Lord, I trust you. But as they went there, the, the town of Jerusalem is not a large town. So they would come in and the place would get swollen to three times the amount of people that would normally abide there or live there. And so because of that, people would just be everywhere. If you, were, if you liked to live in a quiet town, you would not want to live in Jerusalem during the time of Passover or any of the feasts. So as they were coming into town, oftentimes, kind of like a family reunion, people would come in you haven't seen for years. And so they would line up along the gates outside and they would look for their relatives to come into town because there was one way to come into town. So as they would come to town, they would start screaming out each other's names. 
hey, you know, Brother Jedediah or whatever. And they would, as they were coming into town, they would see each other. Once again, it was a joyous occasion. So when Jesus comes in, they're all there. And they see this guy and they see him. He's doing something that was obvious to them what it meant. That he was coming in on this colt, the full of a donkey. They recognized and they already thought that he was the king. So as he's coming in, they start to sing this song that's actually from Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26. And it says, Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, and send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Save now is what Hosanna means. The Pharisees, however, they didn't like them calling him Hosanna. They didn't like him calling out to him and saying, son of David, because they knew what that meant. That was a messianic title. And so actually not in Mark, but in Luke chapter 19, it says some of the Pharisees called to Jesus from the crowd and they said, teacher, because they saw him as a teacher, but they didn't like when he started calling himself God. So they cried out to him. They said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Stop them from calling out to you. They're worshiping you and this is not good. But he, Jesus, answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. In other words, no. (laughs) I'm not going to tell them to be quiet because they're finally saying the thing that's true about me. So as he entered Jerusalem this way, he was directly fulfilling prophecy. We know that prophecy is a foretelling of what's going to happen in the future. And sometimes people have the gift of prophecy where they're just telling the truth, the word of God. And so prophecy doesn't have to be kind of telling the future. It can also just be forthtelling the word of God. Maybe you got somebody in your life where, you know, you, they know, you know that they need to hear from the Lord, but you don't have anything to give them, but you know that something in scripture is going to help them. And so hopefully humbly you will approach them and share something that the Lord has shown you. That's prophecy. That's forthtelling of the word of God into somebody's life. And sometimes God will speak that to your heart about somebody that's close to you. Always, uh, always um, approach them humbly because God wants to be tender. He wants to be truthful, but he's also tender with us. He's, he's nice about it. Like oftentimes we get the idea of the guy with the sandwich board standing out on the, on the sidewalk and he's going, repent, the kingdom of God is here. You know, the Lord's coming back. But I think oftentimes we miss the heart of the Lord because he, yeah, he is coming back for judgment. That is true. But his heart is not that we would like condemn people to believe that, but to convict them by our actions, by our lifestyle, by our words. So a little side note there, I guess. But so he's fulfilling prophecy and it's a prophecy specifically from Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine. And uh, I have it up there for you. It says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So he was foretold to come, but he was foretold to come humbly and peacefully. And he also fulfilled the prophecy that said when the Messiah would come, according to Daniel chapter 9, verse 25 and 26, which explained exactly what, when he would come. You see, in the days of Daniel, the nation of Israel had been in captivity for around 67 years. And the nation, because they disobeyed God's commands to them in the law, were guilty of a whole lot of sin. God had told them that when they were disobedient, he would discipline them. 
and let the pagan nations around them conquer them and take them into captivity. See, God set his people free from Egypt in the slavery and bondage, but he also set them free to follow him because he knows that we will serve somebody. Why not, be, why not serve God rather than idols and false gods? And so he gave them his law to keep them safe, just like we give our children a fence in the backyard to keep them out of the road. We know that he, he gave us his law because it was a fence for us. It was to protect us from ourselves and our wickedness. So he told them he would discipline them. And God explained to them through the prophets that they would be in cap- captivity for a set amount of time. Now, during the days of Daniel, the Lord revealed to him three years ahead of time that the time was almost up for the punishment and they would be allowed to go back into the land of Israel and rebuild the city that their enemies had conquered and destroyed because of their disobedience. So basically their punishment, or in our terms, their time out, that's what we give our kids, right? They gave the nation of Israel a time out. That would be over. So the Lord told Daniel so he would know and get the words to everyone because he was the prophet in those days. And so he wrote it down and placed it with the scrolls of the law and the prophets, which, would, which many would study as the word of God like we're doing tonight. And many others would proudly keep on their shelves and let dust cover but never read. See, we have a group called the Pharisees and the scribes that they read the word, but they didn't know the word. They didn't know the God of the word. And so Daniel chapter 9, verse 25 and 26 outlines when this would happen. But Daniel was the only one that had insight into it because he spent time with the Lord. That was his habit. It says there in Daniel chapter 9, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the prince, excuse me, until Messiah, the prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. So if these folks had read their Bible, they would have known exactly when the command was given by the Persian monarch, by the name of Artaxerxes, to go back and to rebuild Jerusalem. In March 14th, in 445 BC, and then using Daniel's prophecy, one would be able to count forward seven weeks and 62 weeks. But wait a minute, that's not 70 years. What's the math there? Well, in their day, they wouldn't count things in tens like we typically do. Now, we do still have the remnants of this. They would count in sevens and weeks because that's biblical. Six days of creation and one day of rest. That's why we have that pattern of seven, Sunday through Saturday. So, But what the Lord did was he, he told them through Daniel, this is when Messiah will come. And they were all expecting the Messiah to come. They were looking for their deliverer. But what they were expecting was a political deliverer. They were expecting a political Messiah that would come in, get rid of the Romans that were oppressing them, and set up his kingdom and take care of them. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and starts healing people, and he starts feeding them bread, they're like, hey, I like this guy. I hope it's Messiah. And then they start noticing he's doing some of the things, and he claims to be Messiah. But they didn't like that he claimed to be God at the same time. They didn't think it would be God. They thought it would be somebody that God would use. And so, but what I want to point out is that the math is kind of confusing for us. But in those days, 62 weeks and seven weeks, that'd be 69 weeks, right? But then they would count weeks of years. So how many days are in a week? Seven. So weeks of years. Okay. So if we have seven 
weeks, excuse me, seven days in a week, you have 69 weeks, that multiplies and you get 69 times 7, which is exactly 483 years. So that means we should be able to count forward 483 years and arrive at the time Messiah would show up. I think I said 67 years earlier. My bad, I meant 480. So Jesus comes on the scene on the exact day that if you do the math, that's when he was to come. That means we should be able to count 483 years and arrive at the time Messiah would show up from the day that Artaxerxes told the nation of Israel, you can go back and you can rebuild. Now this was a pagan king. So God was completely in control of all that leadership to the point of as he gave them the words to be able to tell them. And so when they sent back and from that time, and so that means we should be able to count forward. And a man by the name of Sir Robert Anderson did this in, his, in a book that he wrote. And he did the calculations based on Daniel's prophecies and the proper calendars of those days. And he came up with exactly 173,880 days, which helps us arrive at April 6, 32 AD. That's the exact day that Jesus ascended the Mount of Olives, rode on a donkey into Jerusalem, fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9 and as well the one in Daniel. I don't know about you guys, but that just blows me away. That God is so intricately involved in human history that he even would speak to the prophet Daniel and tell him, hey, this is when the Messiah is going to come. And then we can today look back at it. And many people are, are completely skeptical about Daniel because it's so accurate. And it's basically because they don't believe that there's a God that could be that meticulous. Many people believe in God, but many people believe that God's kind of a watchmaker. He winds it and then he steps back and he watches it all go on. But he's intricately involved. But what I want you to know more than anything is that though they had these scriptures in the Old Testament... The, the, the Pharisees and the, and the scribes that were the most religious and everybody looked up to them, they didn't know that this was in there. They hadn't done the math. They hadn't calculated. They were very proud that they were God's chosen people, but they did not take advantage of that privilege. They did not take heed to what God's word said, so they did not prepare for the one he would send to redeem them. And not only that, but though they were celebrating the Passover where they would slay a lamb in Jerusalem as a way to remember how God prescribed that they, do, that they would do so after they left Egypt in order to shed the blood of the lamb over the doorposts of their homes. And in that day, if you'll remember, they did that to signify that they were God's people. He told them, I want you to slay a lamb. I want you to make some unleavened bread. And I want you to eat it because if they had unleavened bread, they could leave out of there quick. But also leaven was a picture of sin. It's a way of consecrating themselves. And then to put the blood over the, the doorposts and the lentils was to signify we're covered in the blood of the lamb. And so any household that didn't have that blood covering their doorpost, the angel of the Lord was going to come over that night because they got, went through all the other pestilences and the curses of God. And then Pharaoh continued to harden his heart. And, and Moses kept telling him, let our people go. And he said, no, I will not. First he said, Okay, I'll let him go. And then he said, I won't let him go. And then he said, I'll let him go. I won't let him go. And he kept changing his mind. Well, really, he was just being prideful. So the Lord said, all right, well, I'll get him out of there myself. And so he sets up this intricate plan. It all had to do with the angel of the Lord coming in. And any home that didn't have the blood spread over the doorposts by faith, trusting that the Lord was true, their firstborn would be killed that night. And a lot of people go, well, that's, 
That's completely brutal. But you got to understand, this was a nation that had taken God's chosen people and oppressed them for 400 years. Now, God had a plan for that. But in the meantime, while they were in Egypt, they were an incubator for the growth of the nation so that when they left, they would be able to leave on their own and hopefully go into the land of Canaan, that promised land, and take over the land. They were freed through the blood being shed over the doorposts. They were able to live through that and leave and go across the Red Sea, kind of in a baptism, if you will. But I guess what I wanted to point out was just the fact that these Pharisees and these scribes that hated Jesus so much, if they had just stepped back and go, well, what if he is the Messiah? Let's just, let's just look at it. Scripturally, what is the Messiah supposed to look like? When's he going to come? What does Scripture say about this son of David? What's he going to do? If they'd have looked at that, they'd have seen that this is Jesus. No man could have on purpose fulfilled prophecy that led to the coming of the Messiah. Many people oftentimes go, well, this was just a guy that knew the Old Testament. So he's like, I'll just check all the boxes and fulfill the prophecy. The problem I have with that is that Jesus, when he came on the scene, he was born in the town that he was foretold he'd be born in. I don't know about you guys, but I didn't get to pick the town I was born in. you know. And so Jesus fulfilled this prophecy. And as he came in, this crowd was cheering him on. They loved him. They're like, this guy's going to come in. He's going to make us all to where we're not sick anymore. There's never going to be a shortage for food. It's going to be great. But if you remember with me, and we'll study this in the coming weeks, this same crowd that was at the entrance to Jerusalem that cheered him on and go, you rock, Jesus, come and save us. They're going to be the same crowd that's there when Pilate is examining Jesus. They're going to be the same crowd that looks at him and, and at just a little bit of goading, the Pharisees, and somebody's going to cry out and go, crucify him, and they're all going to join in because they're fickle. They don't care who leads them. They just want somebody to take care of their needs. And so many who claim to be God's chosen people, they missed him when he came to them the first time to save them from their sin. My question for you this evening is, are you going to be among the number who cheer for Jesus only to walk away and then deny him when he isn't what you thought he would be? Or are you among those who not only claim to know him, but are learning to seek him daily? Do you understand who Jesus is? And then when a trial comes in your life, are you still going to follow him? Have you set your heart to follow him no matter what it looks like? I ask you that because even Peter, Jesus told him ahead of time, Satan desires to sift you, to tempt you, to fall away, and you're going to deny me. When I'm in my most hour of need for you to be there with me, you're going to deny me three times. He said, Lord, no, I won't deny you. There's no way. But if you remember with me, Peter was never okay with Jesus being a suffering Messiah. He was never okay with him because he kept telling him, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to suffer. They're going to scourge me, and then they're going to kill me. <laughs> and Peter said, not so, Lord, which we know is a contradiction in terms. And then he said, Get behind me, Satan, because Jesus knew that was what he came for. Next week, we'll look at it where he actually, he goes into the town. And I won't give it too much away, but he goes into the temple. And when he goes into the temple, he finds out that the temple that was meant to be a house of prayer to point to the Lord ended up being a place where they were selling things. And that's not, there's nothing wrong with selling something in the house of the Lord. But they had dishonest scales. They had weighted the scales so that people came, that came for miles to worship. They couldn't bring their own animals. They would bring their gold 
they'd bring their silver, whatever it was they had to spend to buy an animal on site, to sacrifice them and to worship the Lord that way. They would weigh the scales so that if you came to worship, you were going to get ripped off. And people knew that about them. And so they were not reflecting the Lord uh, to the people. So just as God told Daniel that the Messiah would come and when he would come, Jesus also told the disciples that he would return. Now we know that. We worship him. We know that he's going to come back. This time, however, he said that he would return when we least expect it. But he instructed the disciples to be sober, to be watchful. And in the meantime, share the good news of salvation through Jesus so that on the day when he returns, we will be among the number excited to see his return. May there be a procession. And my prayer is that not only would we go, but we would take as many people as we know with us. And whether he comes back before we pass away or whether he comes back, back after we pass away, it doesn't matter. We're going to be face to face with him. He's going to say, what did you do with my son? Did you follow him? Did you accept him? Did you receive him? Did you do the things that he taught? Are we going to be ready is my question. I want to be ready on that day. I want to be ready when he comes and I want to go, Lord, I'm ready to go home. Because there's days right now when I'm ready to go home. Not because I want to escape, but because this life's hard, right? But (laughs) Jesus told his disciples, don't be overwhelmed when the world gets you down. This is a paraphrase loosely. He said, be not afraid because I've only already overcome the world. And he's, gonna, he's already overcome the world. But his overcoming the world to us looks like death. And let me tell you, if you lay your life down and you follow the Lord, it will be death to your own desires, but it will be life to you, to your family, and to those that hear the words that you have to speak. And so uh, that's pretty awesome. God uses us. Cracked vessels. And he uses us to get glory. And he gives us joy when we serve him. So may we be like that crowd, excited to see him when he comes. Not, not overwhelmed, but excited. And uh, in the meantime, let's, let's take as many people with us as we can. Father, thank you so much for just the truth that when you came, you came under a banner of peace. It's, uh, it's amazing that you came the first time to deal with sin and to show us our human, our heart condition. Uh, But you didn't just come to point out that we had a problem uh, like many, even doctors do today. They know how to point out that we have an issue. Sometimes they just don't know how to fix it. Uh, Lord, thank you that you came and showed us we had a problem. You gave us the solution. And when you come back, you're going to take us back to to celebrate with you, with your Father. So, Lord, uh, in the meantime, please prepare us. Change us. Lord, when we're struggling with sin, help us to be honest with you about it. And, uh, and Lord, may you change us from glory to glory. Make us more like your son. Help us to be willing to lay our lives down, even though it might mean that we don't get to do what we want, so that others might hear the good news. Father, thank you. And as we worship you, Lord, I just pray that you would hear our prayers. Lord, may we respond to whatever it is you've been teaching us tonight. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.